Thank you, Seth. Our text is going to be found from Mark 10 this morning, verses 1 through 12. This is what it says. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of God. You can be seated. While you're being seated, let me pray. Father, I want to ask for your grace as we go through this passage today. Lord, I know that this topic can be hard for some, just as many scriptural truths can be for us at different times and in different ways. So, Father, I pray for grace to not only hear this word as we ought, but to receive it as we ought, and to understand it rightly, and to see you, Lord, behind it, to see you rightly for who you truly are, with eyes and heart not tainted by sin. We love you, and we ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled the message this morning, What the Bible Says About, uh, What's the Bible Say About Divorce? And it's part one. I was going to try to cover everything just in this one sermon, but the more I studied it, the more I realized I cannot do this justice and answer the many questions that people might have in just one sermon. So next week, we will come back to this topic and answer, I would say, probably more of the questions that a lot of us have about this topic next week. But what's the Bible say about divorce? And we naturally come to this topic not just because I thought, oh, let's talk about this this topic this morning, but we we come to this topic because of what we practice in this church, what we call expository preaching. Expository preaching means I just expose the text to you. But what expository preaching means is we walk through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's a very healthy way to learn Scripture. It's a very healthy way for you to have Scripture preached to you because Mark wrote this letter to be read from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 16. And so that's the way we're going to have it preached to us as well. And this is good for us, not only for the one teaching it, because it forces me to tackle portions of Scripture I might not tackle otherwise And it forces you to, well, I shouldn't say forces, but it allows you, rather, to receive the whole counsel of the Word of God as He inspired it. So this is why we find ourselves on this topic this morning, simply because we're walking through the book of Mark together. 
The average marriage in the U.S. lasts 8.2 years. 8.2 years. The U.S. actually has one of the lowest averages for length of marriage in the whole world, is what I learned, unfortunately. As far as countries that have higher averages, England, Japan, Mexico, Australia, France, Canada, and Italy, they all have higher averages than the U.S. Italy, actually, one of the highest, 18 years, the average there. In 2020, it's reported that 44% of marriages ended in divorce. 44% is what the average was at by the year 2020. 38% of those were by people who identify as Christian. Christian marriages made up 38% of that 44%. Now, this is people who identify as Christians. Let me say this about that statistic. Um, Less than half of those people said that they regularly attend church. Less than half of those people who identify as Christians said they actually regularly attend church. So we know that just because you identify as Christian, just because you profess Christianity, does not mean that you are indeed a Christian. But that is still the rate, nonetheless. The rate of divorce has actually been decreasing over the past 20 years. But so has the rate of those who are actually getting married It's also decreasing over the past 20 years. So that may be the reason for the the decrease in the divorce rate. If there's fewer marriages, then there's naturally fewer divorces. If you're wondering what God thinks about divorce, well, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess about that. The Lord says in Malachi, I hate divorce in Malachi 2. 16. And today and next Sunday, we'll delve into this subject because that's where we find ourselves in Mark's text. In verse 1, we see Jesus not immediately on this topic. We see it's brought to his attention later. So where do we find him in verse 1? We find him in a different place than we found him in the previous portion of, the, of this book. It says, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So, look at this map of Israel. We find, it says here, he went to the region of Judea. That's the orange section there in the map. That's the lower portion of Israel. Jesus now travels, finally, to Judea. As you might remember, all of his ministry up to this point was all focused in the northern region of Judea. Galilee. Now, our text says that he traveled to Judea and beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan is going to be to that right side of the Jordan there. Look at where the orange portion of Judea and the green portion of this area called Perea meet. He would have been around that area beyond the Jordan because it says he's in the area of Judea, but he's beyond the Jordan on the other side of that river in this area called Perea. That will be important. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this area called Perea was ruled by a man named Herod Antipas. We'll get to him more in just a moment. But I want you to see what it says in the second part of verse 1, especially. It says, And crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. 
As Jesus is continuing his journey closer to the cross, and he will never travel back up to Galilee from this point on, his, his ministry focus is now going to stay in Judea and in Jerusalem especially. The rest of the book is going to slow way down. We're going to just see a lot of details about these last couple portions of Jesus' life there. But he keeps the same custom. Wherever he goes, he teaches the people. And Matthew even adds that he healed many. In the same parallel portion, he healed many while he was there teaching them. Of course, why does Jesus do this? Jesus does this, of course, because he cares about people. He cares enough about them to give them the truth. Doing miracles and then accompanying that miracle with the truth. We've learned in the past that miracles were never a standalone thing. They're not ever supposed to be just a standalone thing because the Lord doesn't ever want anyone to just come to him for a miracle, the end. Thank you, Lord, I'll go about my life now. No, miracles were always, almost always, accompanied by truth teaching after that because the miracle was supposed to then say, now, watch what I did, now hear who I am, which is why I could do this. And he pointed them to the kingdom. He would have told them about, more than likely, how to become children of God, ways that they could follow in obedience and become children of God, putting their faith and trust in the Lord's word. And as they did this, and as more revelation got revealed to them, they would have then heard from the disciples a much more clear explanation of all that the gospel is. But Jesus would have definitely started them off. Because as we know, Jesus didn't always give this full gospel explanation, did he? He just didn't at first. He didn't say, by the way, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to shed my blood. I'm going to rise again on the third day. He said it sort of in sometimes a cryptid encrypted way, didn't he? But it would become more clear. And so he would have definitely pointed these people to the truth of the word of God, which we're going to see he does to the Jews, just as he did to these others following him. Now these others following him cared about the truth. They came to him for truth. We're going to see in verse 2, there's some people that don't come to him for, a tr- for truth, but for a test. They want to test him. That's why they come to Jesus. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees came up And in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Jews aren't looking for truth. They want to test Jesus in front of everyone, to discredit him in front of everyone. But also, probably for this reason, since this region was ruled by Herod Antipas, this was the same Herod who John the Baptist stood up to, and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Meaning, it's not lawful for you to get rid of your current wife and go after your sister-in-law. It's not lawful. You who claim to be a Jew like us, you did not practice those ways. So since you're claiming to be a Jew like us, I'm going to hold you to the truth of the God of the Jews. You might remember how that worked out for John the Baptist. Not very well did it. He was imprisoned, and he was beheaded. And everyone would have known about this, even these Pharisees. It's very likely that they held this question for this area. They wanted Jesus to also speak out about this topic. Maybe he would speak out as boldly as John did about it, and then word would get back to Herod, there's another man who's discrediting your union. You should arrest him as well. 
this was not just a test. This seems as though it was a calculated trap for Jesus. They hated him and might finally have them out of their have him out of their hair should things go the way of John the Baptist. So in looking to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Matthew adds to this, shouldn't say adds, it's not necessarily an addition. He records more of it. They said that day, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Some translations say for any cause. About 20 years prior to this, there was a man named Rabbi Hillel, and he was teaching and made divorce very easy for the Jewish people. He interpreted scripture very loosely, and for almost any cause, he allowed a man to divorce his wife. We will touch on this more soon in this sermon, but this is probably why they asked him this also, because this was a, a hot topic of that day, a, a, a teaching that was only 20 years old and was still very controversial. They, they wanted to say, so what do you think about this controversial teaching, Jesus? We can likely get someone mad at you. If it's not Herod, maybe it's going to be some of the Jews because there's a division over this topic. And so we've got him, no matter how he answers. And so look how he answers. Are they able to trap him? What does Jesus say in verse 3? Speaking perfectly, he points them to the text of the Word of God. He says, what did Moses command you? My answer is going to be the same answer as God's answer, because I'm the Son of God. I'm going to point you to the text. And let me tell you this. If anyone asks you your opinion about some controversial subject, your answer needs to be the same as Jesus. Well, what does the Bible say about that? That's the view that I hold. And again, I told you, and I've told you in the past, if you answer the way God answers, then their anger won't be directed towards you, will it? It'll ultimately be directed towards God, and we know all sinners' anger about their sin, really, is because they don't like what God says about their sin. That's what's really behind the anger over God's laws toward man, is it's they don't want to feel guilty about that sin. They're tired of feeling guilty about that sin. It makes them, the law makes them feel guilty about their sin, and that makes them angry. So they try very desperately to discredit that law and live as if that law is not true, but just a fairy tale made up by Jews, or maybe just this God doesn't exist at all. And that's a much more convenient way for the sinner to live, because then I don't have to worry about my guilt. I can completely live as if it's not there. And so Jesus points them to the Word of God, which is what we need to do. Anytime we're questioned with these things, we go to the Word of God, because it's our final authority in all matters for life and godliness. Your opinion doesn't matter. God's truth is what matters. And that's all we have to give people is the truth of the word of God because that's all that's going to change them, right? Your opinion, what you think, is not going to change anyone. 
unless your opinion lines up with the word of God. And if it does, then therefore, just tell them the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. That's what the Bible tells us. So Jesus points them in his answer. He goes right to what the word of God says on this topic. And Lord, let it be that more people would seek you for what you say in the word of God. And let it be that more people would seek you for what makes for a healthy marriage in the word of God. Not only does the word divorce never cross our lips when we're focused on the word of God, it'll never even cross our mind when we're completely focused on the word of God. And you know, Amy and I made an agreement early on in our marriage that we would never talk about divorce. We just don't, we don't even talk about it. We don't mention it in arguments. We don't even joke about it because divorce is just not an option. And so we just don't ever even bring it up, ever. Um, Because when you talk about it, you think about it. And when you think about it, you could entertain it. And if you entertain it, you could consider it. And if you consider it, you might actually do it. And so we just agreed early on. Let's just not even ever talk about it. Let's not even joke about it. It was often thought of in Jesus' day, even among those who would call themselves the people of God, it was often thought of, this topic was. And so Jesus wants them to see what does God then have to say about this topic. And they say in verse 4, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and Send her away. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about something that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's found in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Either turn there, or uh, you can find the text behind me on the screen. This is the second giving of the law, as you might recall. Deuteronomy is the second giving of this law to the people right before they crossed over the Jordan and went into the land. All the others that had disbelieved and doubted God died off in the wilderness. Once they died off, the second generation, they were the ones allowed to go into the promised land because they weren't guilty of that same doubt and disbelief. And so it gives them a second law. And in the second giving of the law, this is what he says concerning this topic. And this is their reference. that They're referencing this exact point in the law of Moses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. We're going to come back to that point in a second. Because he's found some indecency in her. And he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies... He who took the wife to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God. He's giving you for an inheritance. So the people of Jesus' day, they interpreted this phrase indecency differently. Since 
It's not altogether 100% clear exactly what the Lord meant there, and he doesn't elaborate on it anymore. He says, if he puts a certificate of divorce in her hand because he finds indecency in her. So what is that indecency? That was the conversation among the people of God. Well, there's two camps. There's two schools of thought on what that was. There's the more conservative camp of Jesus' day, and then there's more, the more liberal camp of Jesus' day. And the more conservative school of thought said that indecency only means adultery, some type of sexual immorality within the marriage covenant. That's all it means. That's what the conservative school of thought taught and believed and held to. Well, the more liberal school of thought this was the one held by Rabbi Hillel, like I mentioned earlier. He taught that anything that a woman does to embarrass her husband, to disgrace her husband, even to just displease him, even if she burnt the meal or broke a plate, this could be grounds for a divorce, according to Rabbi Hillel. Any type of displeasure at all, you can get rid of her. Now, because of the sinfulness of man's heart, which do you think was the prevailing view of the day? Of course, it was the one of Rabbi Hillel. Sinful man likes that. Sinful man says, I can just get another wife just because I don't like her anymore? That's what I'll do. And as you know, that's unfortunately becoming the prevailing view of our day as well. For almost any reason, couples might get divorced. We just don't love each other anymore. That might be the reason. The highest percentage of divorces happens between the ages of 18 and 24. 18 and 24 is when the highest percentage of divorces happen. It goes to show that there was just no uh, lasting commitment there in the heart of the young person. And of course, that's a tragedy, and that's sad. It goes to show how marriage is being considered more disposable among the younger people. And this prevailing view of our day is not, is not new. Divorce, the weakening, the cheapening of marriage was also around in Jesus' day as well. There's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon says. Now, the real commandment, though, in Deuteronomy 24, the, the real commandment that we see in that text is really only found in verse 4 about not marrying again the one whom you've already divorced, who has then been remarried to another after she was divorced. That's, what, that's where we really find the command in that portion of Scripture. We, we don't really see any grounds for divorce there. It's just Moses mentioning that if someone did divorce because of some indecency found in her, then she marries another, then the first man is not to then remarry her again after she's already been with another man. That's really the command portion of that text. 
And so in verse 5 of our text, we see Jesus saying to them the real reason behind all this divorce talk in the first place. Jesus says, let me tell you, let me tell you the heart of this. The heart of the problem is the problem of man's heart. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, again, what do we see Jesus is doing? He's going back to the word of God again. He first points them and says, what did Moses say? And then they quote a portion and he says, yes, okay. But what did Moses say about real marriage? Let's see what God said about when God made marriage. Let's go all the way back to when it was first created. Let's not go back to all the things as to why I can break it up. Let's go back to how God said it's supposed to be in the first place when it was together. And so he starts to just quote Genesis chapter 1. That's all Jesus is doing here is just quoting the Bible. (laughs) Whenever you start to quote Scripture in your conversation, which, by the way, it's, it's going to be much easier for you to quote the Scriptures if you're working on getting the Scriptures in your mind. So just little by little, be trying to learn more Scripture listening to it, reading it, writing it on post-it notes that you put in your pocket. Scripture memorization is so good for you, so good for you. And so we just quote Scripture. Know that whenever you start to quote Scripture is when you're bringing out the big guns. You're really bringing out the thing that can do the most, I don't want to say damage, (laughs) maybe the most damage against the forces of evil. How about that? And so he just quotes scripture here. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment to you. But from the beginning of creation, quote, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God therefore is joined together, let no man separate, unquote. Just quote scripture. Jesus shows them. In verse 5, why there's even tension over this issue, and it's because of the hardness of man's heart. Our sin is always at the root of our marital problems, either yours, your spouse's, or both. And I don't think we're so naive that we don't know that, but it's good to hear that. Our sin is always at the root of our marital problems problems. Jesus now contrasts, though, the hardness of heart issue when he quotes from Genesis 1, because he then wants to show this is what it was like before sin even entered the world. You might recall that when we're in Genesis 1, Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3, doesn't it? Genesis 3 is where the fall happens. And so him quoting from Genesis 1, this is before sin even entered the world. And he goes back to how it was pure in the beginning, how it was supposed to be, how God made it fresh and pure. And that's what we, of course, strive for. You might say, but Cohen, we live in a fallen world. It's never going to be perfect. Yes, I get that. But that's what we strive for. Just like you're never going to be sinless, but Jesus still says to you, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He still said that. You might say, well, I'm never going to be perfect, so I just give up. No. You strive for perfection, 
You won't reach perfection, not until glory, but that's the goal. That's where we're going. Because if you give yourself an out, if you say, well, nobody's perfect, guess what? You're going to keep using that, and you're never going to strive for the best because you're always just going to be content with good enough. And so he makes this contrast quoting from the perfect model. And in doing so, we actually get four things that make for a godly marriage. Four things that make for a godly marriage. Today's sermon is going to be mostly about what makes for a godly marriage and not so much about the exception clauses that are allowed for divorce. We're going to see those next week. But look at this now. What makes for a godly marriage? In verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, quoting from a different scripture from Genesis, we're going to get four principles that we can use for a godly marriage, one that was there pure before the fall. So look at verse 6 when he says in verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Singular male, singular female. They were created for each other and no one else. One man, one woman, without any provision for another. God didn't make Adam and three other women. God didn't make Eve and three other men, or four, or five. He made one and one. God gave Adam no other options, nor was Eve given any other options. They were created one for the other only. And then in verse 7, our second thing that we see here, Jesus says, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. Strength in this union. That's what we want to talk about for the second thing. Strength in the union. The first one was one for another, only, ever. That was the original design of God Almighty. The second thing, there's strength in this union. How? Well, there's a leaving of a father and a mother and a clinging to a wife. Leaving the old family and cleaving to this wife in the creation of a brand new family. The Hebrew word for marriage is the word kiddushin. Kiddushin. It means consecration. It means sanctification, which by the way, sanctification. We usually, in our mind, we think, oh, sanctification means growing up into the image of Christ. Yes, but what it actually means is being set apart. That's what the word sanctification means. Something being set, af- set apart is special and, and is holy. So the word for marriage means consecration, sanctification, something set apart, special for the purpose of God. When you get married, you leave the family you grew up in, and you are now set apart in a whole new unit, a whole new family, and that man is said to cling to the wife there. There's a tight strength in this new union is what we see. And that's healthy and good and makes for a strong, good marriage. Number three, we see in verse eight, Jesus says, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This shows the other source of strength in this union is because they become one flesh. They become one they don't just separate and they say now we're multiple parts though they are i get it there's a husband there's a wife there are children there's a family 
But in the marriage, yes, there's two. But they're not considered two. They're considered one, according to this marriage covenant. One spiritually in the covenant that they made with one another before God with their mouths. And this covenant, though, that God creates in the spiritual realm with them, they're joined together in a marriage covenant. But also one physically, of course, in the marriage consecration. Now, you've probably, I have, you've, you've probably spoken to an older person who's lost a spouse. This older person maybe was married to the spouse for 40, 50, 60 years. And I've heard an older person say, it feels like I lost a part of myself. And you know why it feels that way. Because not only on the wedding day do the two become one flesh through covenant and also, spirit, uh, also uh, physically, but time and trials, time and trials, the two T's, time and trials also have a way of further knitting these two souls together so that they are unshakably committed to each other. And that's how they want to be. And they feel incomplete without the other. The longer Amy and I have been married, the longer it's harder for her and harder for me to even enjoy things when we're apart. Because if I'm enjoying something, I feel like, oh gosh, this would be so much better if Amy were here enjoying it with me. It just feels incomplete without her. The oneness becomes a part of your identity. This oneness in marriage becomes a part of your identity. I'm not just Cohen. I'm Amy's husband. That's, that's who I am. It's, it's part of me. I'm Cohen, Amy's husband, because we're, we're one. And when that's taken away one day from either one of us, we will feel incomplete. And if you've lost one in here before, you know that feeling. You feel divided because you're one. Lastly, number four, Jesus says in verse nine, what therefore God has joined, let not man separate. Now, Jesus said this because marriage is God's own work. In a marriage, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, Amy and I were having this conversation the other day when we were walking. Whether it's marriage of a Christian or even marriage of a non-Christian, God joins those people together. When they make those vows, God's doing something in the spiritual realm and recognizing and creating their union. It's not just Christian marriage, that's just marriage. God puts the two together. And again, since God put it together, man is not therefore supposed to separate it. Is what he says here in the text, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I want you to also notice at this point, have you heard Jesus or have you heard me speak a condemning word 
against anyone who has been divorced. Have you heard that yet in the text? Or have you heard that from Cohen? No. Because divorced people can be some of the most hurting people on the planet. There's a ripping that happens, and it's not usually a friendly ripping. It's usually a sad, hard things, and other people are brought into the damage unintentionally. So I understand and know that divorced people can be, can be hurting people. And of course, just as all sin brings hurt into the heart, the Lord can heal any hurt. I want you to also hear that from my lips this morning. The Lord can heal any hurt, and he can help, just like he forgives other past sins. This is one of those as well that can be forgiven and healed. So please hear me saying that as well. But simply put, don't break up your marriage because God put it together. And then also, don't break up other people's marriages. But then we naturally ask the question, so, okay, if, if God's marriage bond is supposed to be so strong, why do so many marriages end in, end in divorce then? Cohen, you said 44%. If, if this marriage covenant is supposed to be so tight and so strong, Cohen, what's the problem? Well, of course, number one, the problem is we're sinners. This was the perfect marriage that God made in the beginning with, with no sin. And as you know, it's always sinful man who messes it up. Your sin messes up every good thing of the Lord. God started off everything good. Actually started off everything very good is what he said on day six when he was done creating. Man, we're the ones who mess it all up. So that's number one, we're sinners. But number two, because of Adam and Eve's original sin, there's, there's a tragic difficulty that's now brought into the marriage relationship that can only be overcome by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This tragic curse that's now brought into the marriage covenant, and we're going to talk about that in a second. There, there are specific curses that make marriage harder. They can be overcome only by the grace that the Lord Jesus gives. The best marriages on planet earth are Christian marriages. Jeff, what's his name? Jeff Bezos, owner of Amazon. Have it right? He recently got a divorce. Also, Bill Gates, recently going through a divorce. Two of the richest men on planet earth. Billionaires. Their marriages are ruined. Yes, financial stresses are sometimes a part of what can hurt a marriage. But guess what? Financial riches don't fix it. Only the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ can make a marriage what it's supposed to be. So because of Adam and Eve's original sin, there's some curses brought in. These curses are mentioned in Genesis 3. 
And we hear that man is cursed in his work, um, an area of great importance to, to any man. Um, and the ground is cursed because of you, he says. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And then woman is cursed concerning childbearing and concerning her relationship with the husband. Also, the area of great importance to the woman. Childbearing, relationship with the husband, things that surround the home. The curse for her specifically says this, and in most translations that we're used to, it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, in the ESV, it translates it a little bit better because we think, well, isn't she supposed to desire him? This is what it is translated in the ESV. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, this phrase, desire, the same Hebrew word is used in Genesis 4, verse 7, when God is talking to Cain. Remember, Cain kills Abel. God puts a mark on him. He sends him away. God's talking to Cain in chapter 4, and he mentions something about Cain's sin. He says, to, he says to Cain about his sin, well, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That desire, same Hebrew word is used there as well, as was used in the curse for the woman, your desire will be contrary to your husband. Her desire will be like the desire that sin had for Cain to rule over him, to take control. So part of why marriage is hard is because of the curse. The woman will want to control the husband, but the husband is given the authoritarian role to rule over her also as a part of the curse. Before the fall, the man and the woman, they were co-laborers. They were equals. After all, Eve was taken from the rib of the side of Adam, right? Beside him, as it were. After the curse of the fall, there's new struggles. New struggles for the woman within the marriage relationship. They will be this. She will want her own way. She will want to rebel against authority. She will want to take the lead role. The struggle for the man now, because of the curse, within the marriage relationship will be that he will want to be unkind. He will want to be ungracious. And he will want to rule with a heavy, domineering hand. What we'll hear from the woman is, you can't tell me what to do. What we'll hear from the man is, do it because I said so. And we get this tension we get this unwillingness to submit, and we get a willingness to rule too roughly. And these are the reasons why marriage can be so hard. Because we have within our sinful nature now tendencies to want to do things contrary to what makes a marriage function. And both man and woman, by the grace of Jesus Christ, can fall into their roles where they actually find the most joy. What sin will tell you, women, is this. You'll be happier if you take lead and tell him 
what to do. And tell him you will be independent of him and do what you want to do. Don't boss me around. And men, you think you'll be happier if you are the type of man that says, woman, go get me my chips. Do it because I said so. You think that will be what makes you the most happy. And you'll find that that doesn't work either. What we find actually brings us the most joy is submitting to those things that we think are farthest from the truth. Men have worked within them. If I serve her, that's going to make me look weak. And I want to be respected. And what men find out is, as they serve their wife, they get respect from the wife. And women, what they find is, if, if I submit to him, I'm going... I'm not going to get this right kind of love that I want. You know what? Actually, I don't get the kind of love that I want, so that makes me want to rebel. And what you'll find, women, is that as you submit to your husband, he will be more loving toward you when he's following Christ, as he ought to as well. And so the two things that we need to feel the most joy, men, actually what fills up our joy tank, yes, love, but what fills up our tank of joy the most is feeling respected. And for women, what fills up their joy tank is feeling loved. And what we find is, as we do that for each other, is the perfect circle. There's a whole book about this called Love and Respect. It's a good book. I read it before we got married, and I'm glad I did. Um, Amy might say, I wish you would have read it twice, but um, it still did help some. So the conflict that our sinful natures can create, leads many to just throw marriage away. Just throw it away and attempt to find someone else. Or just not marry at all. But Jesus reminds them of what the Lord's original marriage was at the beginning of creation. They were created for each other and no one else. The strength of the union was to sustain them as a new family unit, having left the old. They were one flesh and operate as one. And the oneness is the only option. Division of the one isn't even on their minds. And if the division does happen because of death, they feel so very incomplete. And then lastly, all of this because God was the one who made their union in the first place. And God followers know that it's God who keeps the union well. So look at verses 10 through 12, and we'll, we'll end with it with a few points about this, kind of leaving us um, to explore the rest next week. But Jesus in 10 through 12, uh, it, it says this, and, and in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife marries another, commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband, marries another, she commits adultery. Now Matthew's version says the fuller explanation of that, Matthew says in 19.9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And Matthew 5.32 says something very similar, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. This is what's been commonly called the exception clause. The exception clause. 
because it's the only reason we find that Jesus gives as an exception for divorce. We'll also see next week that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives another cause as well. And we'll explore both of those in much more detail next week. God wants us to have fulfilled marriages. You want you to have fulfilled a fulfilled marriage. And you know, don't you, that the Lord's given us everything we need here to have that fulfilled, happy marriage. When your marriage is not happy or fulfilled, it's because either you or your spouse or both are not following the rule book because God's laid out how it's supposed to work perfectly. And if you're thinking, well, I'll do my part when he does his or when she does his, that's not the way to do it. You take the first step. You take the first step in obedience and see what God does and continue to walk in obedience no matter what happens. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the word of God. We're grateful for the fact that you created this union, that you created this family that really has so much impact upon how society functions. So Lord, I pray that you would please give us healthy marriages as we walk according to your word. I'm not going to pray that you will just fix marriages. I pray that you will fix them as we walk out the truths in your word. That's how they will be fixed. And I pray that you would keep our marriages strong. Lord, the devil hates us. He hates our marriages. He wants to break them up because he also hates our children. And divorce can be so devastating on a child. So Father, I pray that you would please keep our marriages strong, keep them protected. And for those in here who have been divorced, I pray for grace and help with those wounds. And for those who are still single, not married yet, I pray that you would be preparing for them even now, a godly spouse who will walk alongside with them in the grace that the Lord provides for a healthy marriage. We pray all this in Christ's name.